The epistle reading comes from Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the, att attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks uh, be to God. If you could turn to Acts chapter 2, this is the, uh, uh, we read this a few, Jonah read this to us a few seconds ago, uh, Acts 2, 42 through 47. Uh, this is a text, I preached through this text um, several years ago, and I'm just going to do one just broad overview of this text, and there's a lot in here that I can't talk about today. But here's where, we, here's where we are in the story. We started at the very beginning at Genesis, and we've moved through, and we've talked about Christ's death and resurrection, and next week, we're going to talk about Jesus' second coming, and the week after that, we're going to talk about the new creation and then we'll be done with the sermon series and done with the church year. But this Sunday, we are in the gap between the book of Acts and when Jesus returns. This place where there's, the Bible doesn't talk about me and you. The Bible doesn't talk about America. It doesn't talk about things that have happened in the past 2,000 years. It ends, Acts 28, it ends with uh, Paul preaching in Rome. And then there's this gap here. And what I want to talk about today is that gap. And what are Christians supposed to do now inside of that gap? Acts 2 is a great place to go because it's kind of a, just a rough sketch of the way the early church life looked after Pentecost. And uh, to talk about, and I want to point out, um, I have five things, but I think I'm going to skip one of them because it might be a little bit too long. Let's do four things here. Um, how does this, Acts 2, 42-47, how does it describe the way the life of the Christian church should look? And I'll just warn you, it's very basic. There's nothing, you know, if the answer to the question, what should we be doing now, is something complex or something huge in scope, like, hey, St. James has to go out there and change the world, we've probably bitten off more than we could chew. Actually, it's very basic, what God is calling us to do. And so let's run through a few of these things. Acts 2, 4. I'm not going to read this whole thing again, but um, we'll look at these uh, four or five things as they pop up here. So the first thing is the story. We should be people of the story. Acts 2, 42 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So uh, what is the apostles' teaching? Well, we just had a really great example of that. It, we didn't read this, but in the section right before this is Peter's Pentecost sermon. And what Peter does in the Pentecost sermon, this is, the, this is like the earliest apostles' teaching, is he basically tells the story of Israel with Jesus as the ultimate climax of that story. And this isn't, this, we see this all the time. Jesus does this himself. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus is talking to a couple of guys and he says, it says Luke, Luke says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, so basically what we've been doing, reading the story of the Old Testament, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures, Moses and all the prophets, the things concerning himself. Jesus takes all the scriptures, makes it about himself, 
That's the earliest apostolic teaching. So you got Peter, you got Jesus. Paul also does this. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance. So this is like the heart of what Paul wants to say. This is the heart of his message. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He says in accordance with the scriptures twice. Why? Because Paul is trying to tell the story of Israel, to tell the story of the Old Testament with Jesus as the climactic and final chapter. The whole story of the Bible, which is another way of saying the whole of human history, finds its end goal and target in the Jesus event. God becomes a human being to be like me and you, to have emotions like us, to have a body like us, to have thoughts like us, so that he can die on the cross, conquer all of the evil forces in the world, including death, including the devil, including our sins, which desperately need forgiven, to rise from the dead, to guarantee that he's the Lord of the universe, rules and reigns over everything, and will finish writing the story with a great ending. That's the story that, that Peter, Paul, and Jesus, and the lot tell. The earliest church buries themselves, immerses themselves in this story. So I've talked to you guys before about we need to read our Bibles. And I know that there's a little bit of pushback against that, understandable pushback. Let me talk about why that's important one more time, if I can, with you guys. Do you ever know anybody who's like seriously into like Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter? And they read the stories over and over and they watch the movies over and over and they go to comic cons and they dress up like characters from the Lord of the Rings or from Harry Potter. And they, they're constantly quoting from these books and they're constantly referring to them. And you can't hardly talk about anything without them saying, you know, that reminds me of that part in the two towers when such and such happens. You, you ever know people like that? What they're doing is, is they immerse themselves in a story so much that it affects the way they think about the world. It affects their worldview. And, and you can do worse than, you can do a lot worse than Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings too. Those are good things. If you're gonna immerse yourselves in stories, those are good things to buy into. They immerse themselves in a world. They immerse themselves in characters, in the way that people talk and act. If you went to one of them, like if you went to a Star Wars fan and you said, why do you watch those movies over and over? I mean, you already know what happens. You knew what happened the first time you saw it. Why do you watch them over and over? They really wouldn't know what to say to you. It's not a question of like, I'm not watching it to find out what happens. I already know what happens, but the story, I just connect with it, and I'm like into it, and it makes sense to me, and it scratches a whole ton of emotional and psychological itches that I have, and the worldview makes sense to me, and the belief that even though things are really, really horrible, and they look like everything's going to be lost, that goodness, against all odds, ends up winning in the end, which if you ever, you know, you watch Star Wars, if you read Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter, that's the vibe, is that there's no way this is going to work. And then righteousness wins and the bad guys get defeated. It's not a question of like, oh, I need to, oh, I forgot what happened. Does, you know, does, does Luke Skywalker win or does Darth Vader win? No, you, you watch it because it's your story and you buy into it. And when, when the early church is described as constantly being in the apostolic teaching, and when I try to encourage us to be in the Bible I know that one of the things that you'll say is, well, it's hard because I already know what it says. And let me just encourage you, that's not the point. 
The point is to become like the kind of nerd that gets into Star Wars, but just about the Bible. With the difference being that the Bible is not just a story, it's not just a big story, it's actually the one and only story. It's the capital S story. It's the story that, honestly, Star Wars, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, they don't make sense if the Bible doesn't exist. If there isn't a God who's made everything, and that everything that he's made has somehow become screwed up because of our brokenness and sin and rebellion, but that God has, come, has, has taken great steps to fix that problem, to come up with a solution to make everything right again, namely his own death and his own resurrection. So to constantly be re-immersing ourselves in the story so that it becomes the way that we think, becomes the way that we talk, it becomes our worldview. At the beginning of the summer, I encourage you guys, and let me do it one more time, to take a sort of a detox break from all the fake stories that we become a part of. Now, these stories aren't bad. I'm not saying they're evil. I'm not saying you should never, ever look at these stories. I'm saying what happens is to many of us is that these stories become, we become like Comic-Con nerds, but with other fake stories. And sometimes it's good just to, stay, to take a step back, do a, a Lent-style retreat from these things, and really bury yourself in the one true story. Really bury yourself in the one true story. And these are all different for all different people. And for, for some, I'll say, I'll say one, and you'll be like, who cares about that? That's not a big deal. For some of you, it's the financial news. For some of you, it's the stock market. It's watching the stock market go up and down. And you've come to believe by immersing yourself in that world constantly, but by, by being involved in the financial news in the way that some nerds are involved in Star Wars, you've come to really believe the promise that what's wrong with the world or what's wrong with you personally is that you don't have enough. The solution is to have more. And you ride the wave of that story and it controls your emotions, it controls the way you think and talk, it controls the decisions that you make. And I'm not saying it's bad to look at the financial news. I'm just saying that maybe if that's your thing, if it's not, whatever, but if that's your thing, like take a break and double down on God's story where he insists what's wrong with the world is not that people have not enough money. That, that's a minor problem, but that we are broken and rebellious and everything is, is, uh, 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 everything is broken and at fault. And that he has a plan to fix that through Jesus Christ to double yourself down on that story. For some of you, it's going to be, um, it's going to be politics. Again, politics, super important. You need to be knowing what's going on. But I, I've, I've talked to some of you who are incredibly stressed out, who wake up in the middle of the night to turn on the, 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 the political news channels. And again, you need to be aware. And of course, you need to listen to Annie's show too. Uh, that's, uh, give you a, a pass on that one. You can faithfully listen to that, make that your story. But if you are watching like the talking heads on TV, what you have to, which you should do. I'm not telling you it's evil. What I'm telling you though is be aware that it's telling a story. And if you start to buy into that story, it's a false story. And one of the stories is what's wrong with this country is that that political party has too much sway and power. And the solution will be if we can have sway and power. And if you start to believe that story, you're believing a fake story. You're believing a story that something other than Jesus can save the world. 
For me personally, I, I, don't, I don't really struggle with the financial news stuff and I don't struggle with the political stuff. There have been times, and I know that you're gonna be like, this is just stupid. There have been times in my life when I have had to cut myself off from watching the Cardinals play. And I know, I know if, that, if you're not a sports person, you're like, you are such a loser. But there have been times when it's controlled my emotions, it's controlled my thought patterns during the day. I've actually, I would never say this out loud, never say it out loud because I'm not that stupid. It's actually controlled what I've thought about the big story. Like, what's the solution? What's the problem? The problem is that the Cardinals can't pitch. What's the solution? They need to go out and get some good pitchers. And that's what, that's what, that's what controls my thoughts and emotions during the day. And the Cardinals aren't bad, of course. I mean, they're a bad team, but it's not bad to watch the Cardinals, I mean. But I've had to cut myself off. Angel and I were uh, sort of binge-watching. It depends on what your definition of binge-watching is. A show on Netflix several years ago. And it wasn't an evil show or anything. But I actually had to, like, stop watching. Because it was starting to affect the way I talked and the way I thought and the way I felt. Be aware that the enemy is constantly introducing false narratives to try and trap us to try and turn us away from the real salvation. What is going to make your life better? Fill in the blank. Whatever it is, it's probably not a bad thing for most of us, but it can be a bad thing if it pulls us away from the apostolic teaching. It, it could be like, I need romance. It could be like, I need my marriage fixed. It could be like, I, 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 need, I, I need a better house. All these things are fine, but if they become your controlling story, if you become a Comic-Con nerd about the Cardinals or about politics, then you've substituted the one true story for um, a fake story. Don't, don't do that. Let's be people who are swimming, soaking, basking in God's word. That's, I, I, and I have a section here about Holy Communion, which is basically the same thing. It's gonna, Holy Communion also tells a story. And I'm gonna leave that out. I'll bring that up in, in, in another sermon. But whatever it is that you need to do to start making your diet of story, the Bible, go do it. Everybody's got access to good English translations. Like, jump into it and just start reading. Okay, here's the second thing. Uh, community, verses 44 through 46. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing, to the, uh, proceed, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They had all things. That, so you get this image of like this earliest Jesus community constantly living life together, constantly hanging out with each other. And this is remarkable, this phrase, all things in common, for, for a couple reasons. Um, one is that, if you remember the, the story of Pentecost, it's people with all different kinds of ethnic backgrounds and all different kinds of languages, and now they're together with all things in common. That's remarkable. That does not happen naturally. The second thing is this. All things in common, all things in common, that, 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 that means finances. If you flipped over to, to the end of Acts 4, you'll see that it means money. But it means a lot more than that. It means a heck of a lot more than that. All things in common. Can you think of somebody that you would say, I have everything in common with them. Everything in common. I, there's not a single person in the world that I would say, in normal conversation, I have every single thing in common with them. 
And yet Acts 2 describes the Jesus community as having all things in common. Now, what does that mean? It means this. If your story and my story that we bathe ourselves in and live in is the one true story, everything else is tangential and uh, secondary compared to that. So much so that it can be said, like, we have everything. I'll I'll give you an example. So do Angela and I have everything in common? No. I I wouldn't be like, what do you not have in common? Well, you know, I, I don't have a lot in common with Angela. What is that? Well, her favorite color is green and my favorite color is blue. You would just say, that's inconsequential. Like, there's enough space within any human relationship for people to have different favorite colors, right? Well, okay, so w- what do we not have in common? Well, I'm, I'm lower middle class and they're upper middle class, and so, okay. Or I'm into sports and they're not. I like outdoor stuff and they like indoor stuff. They like to watch movies and I don't really like to watch movies. If our, so sometimes that's a huge thing. If your identity is, I'm a huge movie fan, like, if, if your story is, I'm a Cardinals fan. With a Cubs fan, it's like, okay, so the, we don't have that in common. That's going to be difficult. But if your main story is the story of Jesus, the story of God fixing everything through Jesus, then the fact that I'm a Cardinals fan and you're a Pirates fan, the fact that my favorite color is blue and your favorite color is green, the fact that I like to do outdoor stuff and you don't like to do outdoor stuff, the fact that I like hip-hop and you like jazz, all this is so inconsequential that it really doesn't matter. It's like having different favorite colors. Well, okay, so we still have stuff in common, right? That's why they have everything in common because all of a sudden, the thing that identifies them most is not their gender and it's not their ethnicity and it's not their socioeconomic status. The thing that identifies and binds them all together is this new, fresh, God-making-himself-human story. And they're bathing in it and that's everything that matters. And if you want to go play golf, and I'm going to go play Dennis because I don't like to play golf, it doesn't matter because we are Jesus' people, and that's the thing that binds us together. They have all things in common. So this is a, too big of a topic to try and grapple with in one sermon, but this is necessary. Like We all crave for somebody or a group of people with which we can have all things in common. And it's offered to us right here in Jesus of Nazareth. It's offered to us in this community where it doesn't matter what kind of money you have or what your hobbies are. What matters is we've been baptized into Jesus Christ. Community, this kind of, this kind of community covers up what's missing in, so if I'm the kind of person who only likes blue and Angela's the kind of person who only likes green, I'm missing out on the green life, whatever that, whatever that might mean. I, 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 I need you. This, like, this, the individualism that we've committed to as Americans is actually stunting me. It's left me hollow and empty with all kinds of weak points in my character. And I, I, this all things in common is so essential. It's not just, wow, it's really nice that we got good friends. And, and by the way, a lot of you have communities outside of Christian church. That's totally fine. That's good. You need to have those communities. But if you stop and you think about those communities, what binds you together is you live in the same neighborhood or you like the same sport or you work in the same office. This is not everything in common. This is one thing in common. 
Those communities are great. You need to live and love in those communities. But this community here, because we don't share just one thing in common, your strengths can match my weaknesses. Because the one thing that binds us together is Jesus. That binds me to you. And so the fact that, this is silly, I know, the fact that you like golf and I like tennis, that covers up my badness at golf. The fact that you are patient and I'm sort of hasty, we can cover each other up that way because we're not gonna get irritated with each other because you move slow and I move fast. Because in Jesus Christ, which is the main thing that binds us together, I realize that I need to be slowed down sometimes. And you realize that you need to be sped up sometimes. And so my strengths meet up and match with your weaknesses and your strengths meet up and match with my weaknesses. Quick, a couple quick comments about this and then we'll move on. Um, this is why I've argued that the solo pastor, the one dude in charge of the church, is a really bad unbiblical model. What happens is when we have this model is that a person like me who's got four, I, I've got one thing that I'm good at. I've got one thing that I'm good at. I know about the Bible and I can talk about it. I have 216 things that I'm horrible at. And if I'm allowed to be in charge around here, all those 216 things are going to be imprinted upon you guys in this church. I need you and the things that you're good at to cover up the things that I'm bad at. So there's, uh, there, there's, there's uh, for those of you who are engineers, you, you'll know way more about this than me. There, there's a model in engineering, a model of accident causation called the Swiss cheese model. And it works like this. If, something, if there's some sort of like engineering failure, some sort of like structural failure, um, you can think of it in terms of like pieces of Swiss cheese. Usually uh, systems will create uh, uh, blocks to make sure that accidents don't happen. And every one of these steps has holes in it, like a slice of Swiss cheese. If you take a block of Swiss cheese, it doesn't have any holes in it. If you slice it, it will have holes in it. If you put the slices together, you won't be able to get through those holes. Accidents happen when there's not enough slices of cheese and some of the holes line up. And I, I, I don't understand engineering at all, but that makes sense to me in terms of the value of Christian community. Is that if, if, if your gaps and my gaps are not matching up, what we have in common is that we can be this solid block of Swiss cheese that can be used by the Lord. It's an analogy, right? So community is super important. And the early church invested in it immediately. This is a good spot to do a commercial for community groups or some sort of like living life together. Here, find somebody after church and be like, let's get together and have coffee or let's go get lunch right now. Get involved in community groups, uh, super important. The early church does. Okay, uh, vocation, these, these next will be kind of quicker. Uh, verse 47, this is vocation. Praising God and having favor with all the people. Favor with all the people. Having favor with all the people. What does this mean? Well, it means the early Christian community was attractive. People liked them. Well, why did they like them? Well, they liked them almost certainly, if you keep on reading in the book of Acts, if you keep on reading the way Paul tells us to interact with those who don't believe, because they loved and they served. The Christian church is not called to make itself obnoxious to people, which we do a really good job of sometimes. It's not call, we're not called to be the, you know, the answer guy in the room, where it's our job to tell everybody how we're right and they're wrong. It's our job to live gospel-centered lives in such a way that we gain favor with the people. Now, that can't be your target goal. Jesus warns us in his high priestly prayer that the world will hate us because of him. But when the world hates us, 
Let's let it be because of Jesus, not because we're jerks, not because we've pulled ourselves into a ghetto. I got a postcard several years ago. It was anonymous here at the church. It was anonymous, which is the way these things usually work. And it was this kind of like, in the space that you can have a postcard, it was kind of a diatribe against churches being tax exempt and then just kind of sitting on that tax exemption. And I don't know how many, this person, I don't know how many of these they sent out to the different churches that are tax exempt. Of churches are tax exempt, you, you, you know that, right? And it was kind of this like, you're not paying taxes, and you guys just sit there and you, you soak up resources and you pay salaries to your workers and then you don't do anything. And I was, of course, uh, um, you know, when you get hate mail, it wasn't very hateful, but when you get dislike mail, was that what it was? Uh, the first reaction is to kind of be like, who are you? Come show your face. Let's talk about this in person. But actually, it's kind of a good point, you know? The Christian church, if, if we are takers instead of givers, we're not going to have favor with the people. We're not going to be living Jesus. Jesus is a friend of sinners. An outward-facing, Holy Spirit-empowered, Jesus-shaped life is a life that lives for others. So there's some, like, if, if we are going to be, if we do not have to pay taxes to Glenn Carbon or to Illinois or to the federal government, we need to be doing what we can do to love and serve. Whether we pay taxes or not, this, that's not the point. But we need to be outward-facing. We need to be living lives of being called by God, so we talk about vocation. We're called by God. God has placed us here in Glen Carbon to love and serve this community. And we need to be doing it, whether it's big or whether it's small. We need to be the kind of place, I've said this before, I'll say it again, we need to be the kind of place that maybe not everybody in Glen Carbon believes what we believe. Certainly not everybody in Glen Carbon is going to attend this church. But if St. James shut down, Glen Carbon would be like, oh, that's rough. We are missing out. We are losing something because St. James isn't here. This is a part of what it means. Is to just, how, how do you do this? Just love. Just be a good neighbor. Just, it's a ton of different little things. It's, and, and a lot of the community groups are doing stuff like this just to love and serve and to take care of, take care of the community. We uh, uh, helped out with the Easter egg hunt. This is kind of like, it's not a big deal. We went out, we hit Easter eggs. We kind of stood around and talked to people. It's not a big deal, right? But what we're doing is, is we're loving and we're serving. All right, that's vocation. Somebody here is gonna be, we're, we're almost done here. Somebody is gonna say, okay, so what about evangelism? You're, you're leading up to this, right? Like we need to be out there preaching the gospel. And there, there's, we can have that discussion. In fact, we're gonna have it downstairs in adult Bible study after this. We've been having it for a while. But actually, when you look at this, what is the evangelism that's going on here is, so the Christian church is, what we're doing is we're devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching. We're in community. We're living lives of favor before all the other people. And last line of the text, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's, it's a, it describes what the church is doing and then it finishes off by saying, here's what Jesus is doing. Like, Jesus didn't die, rise from the dead and go to heaven and now he's like, I'm out of here. I'll be back. You guys hold down the fort. No, Jesus is the one who's actively evangelizing. And what seems to be the implication here and what we're finding out in adult Bible study too is that the, the Christian church is not very good at evangelism in terms of like, oh, we're really good at convincing people that, you know, that this is true and that they should believe it. 
the Christian church is oftentimes reluctant, frequently bumbling in terms of its relationships with unbelievers. And yet, Jesus continues to add to our numbers those who are being saved. Jesus does it. Jesus is the one, it's still Jesus' story. He's the one who evangelizes. And what this text looks like it is saying is, if we fill up on his story, if we love each other in community, if we serve the context that he's placed us in, Jesus is gonna do this. He's going to grow his kingdom. He's going to make it good. So this is what the Christian church should be up to. We should be people of word and sacrament. We should be people that are deeply involved in community with each other. We should be people who are committed to loving and serving our neighborhoods and our neighbors. And then we can watch while Jesus grows it. We can watch while Jesus brings people to him as Jesus grows his kingdom. All right, let's pray, then we'll have communion. Father, thank you for being good to us and for loving us. Thank you for your word. Father, help us to uh, be people of your word. Help us to be people involved in each other's lives and help us, be, help us to be people who are living out your calling to us to love and serve our neighbors. And we trust that you will grow your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.